Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44 as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 23 today. Isaiah 44, 6 through 23. Before we go to God's word, let's go to him again in prayer and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come here together for your word, and we we listen to it, we hear it read, we pray that you would help us. Because many times we hear and understand these words, but yet we don't do them. We hear them, yet we don't believe them. It's because we're convinced still that we have better ideas than you. And so as we read your word and hear it, we pray that you would convict us of this sin. That you would teach us that there is no good truth but your truth. And that you would lead us in it as we go to your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as I read this passage... It made me think of the famous John Calvin quote that you've probably all heard that he said that the human heart is a perpetual idle factory. He said this as a, a larger treatment uh, in his book and his work, The Institutes of Christian Religion. Strongly recommend that to you if you're interested in working through a book over the next three or four years. It's good, though. It's good, but it's not just, you know, it's not just that reading that I do because it's light and fun. But it's good. And idolatry is something that's been a problem with the people of God since the garden. And so this is what he said in this chapter when he was talking about idolatry and trying to get at the idea of why people make idols. What is it about that? That what, what is it about our hearts that want to do this? And this is what he said. He said, so it goes... Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity, as it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance. It conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. To these evils, a new wickedness joins itself that man tries to express in his work the sort of God he has inwardly conceived. Therefore, the mind begets an idol, the hand gives it birth. For Calvin, and as we're going to see in the scriptures, the origin of idolatry is the idea that we want a God that we can see and touch and manipulate and ultimately bend to our own wills. A God that we can control. When the one true God isn't that, when he's not a God that we can control, and he's not, then we will make one for ourselves every time. This wasn't new in Calvin's time, and we're going to see it wasn't new in Isaiah's time either. As we look in Isaiah 44 today, Isaiah dealt with this as he led Judah through a very tumultuous time in their history. They survived the siege from Assyria. Now they're now they're being told that many years in the future another empire is coming in Babylon, 
And so they are reaching out at this point for whatever it is that might save them. They even reached out to pagan nations during this time that had formerly been masters of them and hoped that they could help them. Isaiah showed them the folly of their idolatry and called them to return to the one true God. This is still a problem today, brothers and sisters. Idolatry hasn't gone anywhere just because we're no longer carving them and putting them in our living rooms. It's no longer gone. It's not gone anywhere. In many ways, our idols are worse because they're hidden to everyone except for us and God. They've taken up residence in our hearts, constantly convincing us that the true God can't save us, so we make we must make one out of our own image in order to save ourselves. So as we work through this passage, we're going to see our own heart in this and God's call to repentance. We'll look at three main ideas, the folly of idolatry, the danger of idolatry, and then finally deliverance from idolatry. So with that, please stand with me, reading Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 23. Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 23. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no other God. Who is like me? Let Him proclaim it. Let Him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. There is a God. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashion, who fashions a God and casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works, works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line, he marks it out with a pencil, he shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and he falls down before it. Half of it he burns in a fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes it into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, 
Nor is there any knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on the coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He eats on, or he feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, and you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O the depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So if you were, just as for a bit of context, if you were to take, just look at a summary of the Bible, any kind of summary, and even just to do a cursory reading of that summary, much less by reading the entire Bible itself, you will quickly, you will quickly reveal that God's people rarely had a moment in their history where they weren't struggling with the sin of idolatry in some form or fashion and to some foreign God somewhere. As we deal with the fact that the idol originates in the heart of man, I want to look at one of the clearest and earliest examples of this in Scripture. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. I'm only going to read the first six verses, but you can read the rest of it on your own. Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered for themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, note note their motivation here. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, We do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, or in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So again, note their motivations here. They didn't know what happened to Moses. They're out in the wilderness. They saw that he was delayed from coming down the mountain. They say, we don't know what happened to this man, Moses, who has brought, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. So we want to have this other thing that we can say to it. You brought us up out of the land of Egypt. They wanted to have a God notice that would 
go before them. So without a leader that they could see, they needed to make one. They wanted to make a leader that they could see, so they made it out of earrings and said to it, These are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. And without going into display or without going into detail as to what happened next, what next, what followed was a rank display of immorality. They had no idea where their God was or where Moses was, who was the mediator between them and God. So they made a cow that would protect and guide them. Before we judge, it's easy to read this and think, oh, how dumb were they? Before we judge, we are no different church. Were we there on that day, we would have saw rationality in Aaron's statements and his choices, and we would have rose to play right along with him. You don't even have to get out of the cover page of the 21st century to see that society has turned to this kind of thing. In order to see our sin, we have to understand the heart behind our creation of our own idols. In order to see the folly and irrationality of it, we have to consider the character of God and we have to read the word of God. So with that, let's turn back to Isaiah 44, looking again at verses 6 through 8. Besides me, there is no God. It's the, the, the section title for this portion of in my Bible. So this shows us the folly of idolatry because hear what the Lord says. This says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let him declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And so here God announces himself. He gives us a small picture of his qualifications as the one true God. And note the titles that he gives himself. He's the Lord. He gives us his proper name there, Yahweh. He is the king of Israel. Not a king put there by some other person, but he is the king because of who he is. He is the redeemer, the one who saves his people. He is the Lord of hosts, the one who leads his people to battle. He is the first and the last Meaning here that not that he was the first and last in line, but that in him encompasses all existence and time itself. There was nothing before him. There's nothing after him. In fact, there is no such thing as before him or after him. Those times don't exist because he created time. He is eternal, meaning there's not a time that he did not exist God has no creator. He is creator. Notice that that's different from other gods. Besides me, there is no God. The thrust here is not only the fact that God is announcing that he is the only God. That is definitely the case. But what he's also saying is, is that those other gods who would claim that wouldn't exist without me. The scriptures in several places suggest that gods that the pagans worship are really just demons in disguise. I encourage you to look at Deuteronomy 32, 
1 Corinthians chapter 10, for your own study, they parallel well with this passage today. And they suggest that very thing. Those demons had a starting point, though. They didn't just kind of come up because evil existed. They didn't come from nothing. God created them. They are a creation. Apart from God, there is no existence, not only for man, but also the gods that man has dreamed up. So God issues a challenge here for any false god to come and stand before him and be recognized and make the same claims that he himself has made, knowing full well that they will not come, they cannot come, they would not come. Even if they thought about it, they know better. Think about the times that Jesus came face to face with the demons in the Gospels. How did they react to the very Son of God? They didn't want to stand and fight with him. They were terrified of him. They reacted in fear. The evil minions want nothing more to do with the one true God, much less the stones and trees that people carve up and call gods. And notice verse 8. Fear not, nor be afraid. This is what he says to his own people here. It goes back to the words that he shared with Joshua so long ago. We're all familiar with those verses in Joshua chapter 1. And that's what he says. Have I not told you from old? And you, you're my witnesses. We just said that in Isaiah 43. It's not as if this is just any people that he's telling these things. These are people that, that God actually fought for. That, that he won. The battle for them that he has redeemed. He took them out of a horrible place. And he set them in the promised land. And he says, there is no rock. I know not any. This is old language also taken right out of Deuteronomy 32. Again, that whole chapter is phenomenal. God refers to himself over and over again as the rock. Paul joins the chorus in 1 Corinthians 10 as he reminds us that the rock was Christ. The promise was about the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the one true God of the universe, the one who has only ever taken care of his people, only ever. And that's the folly of idolatry, brothers and sisters, that we would ever turn to anything else at any time for anything. Yet, we become afraid. And he tells us, don't be afraid, but yet we do. And we begin to wonder, are you there, God? We become afraid. You've all heard people say things like this, particularly when I've talked to unbelievers over the years. People have maybe even turned away from their faith. Maybe they went to church as a kid or something, and now they they weren't, and this was their reason. Well, I prayed to God, and He didn't hear my prayers. They usually say in a matter-of-fact way, as if the only way God can acknowledge our prayers is by doing exactly what we tell Him to do. How arrogant is that to think that just by simply us speaking words that we could somehow influence our creator to adhere to the wishes of our hearts as if they are right and true, like he's some sort of cosmic tinkerbell. So what do we do in response? We make something then that will listen to us. And that brings us to the danger of idolatry. I think this section of scripture where it's starting in verse 9 is probably the best that I know of that when it comes to describing the human heart 
and the folly and the danger of making idols and what is really happening when we do that. Verses 9 through 11, God begins by explaining the emptiness of creating idols. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses, as opposed to my witnesses, their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. So he shows them that those who create idols are nothing. Those who are witnesses to idols are nothing. Whereas the witnesses of God draw strength and significance from the rock himself, the witnesses of idols are nothing. They delight in nothing, and the things that they delight in will not profit. Compared to God, they are nothing. When they stand before God, they only tremble. That's their only response. You see that in verse 11. And what follows next is a story of the creation of an idol. So we are given this image of craftsmen who are kind of going through the process of creating idols and feeding themselves. After a bit of work, the first craftsman becomes hungry and he needs to re-energize. So he, the other, the other craftsman takes half a log and builds a fire to cook with and to get warm. And I, I, you know, Isaiah even helps us here in verse 16 that this, this person who's created this thing, he says, half of it burns in the fire over half of it. He eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire as if he has done some just incredible thing by chopping up wood and setting it on fire and making food with it. And then notice what he does with the other half of the log after he's eaten and warmed himself. Verse 17, the rest of it, he makes it into a God, his idol, falls down to it and worships it, prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Crazy to think about it. So understand, one thing, he consumes with fire, uses it to take care of his most basic needs, and with the other part, he makes an image of himself, falls down before it, and begs it to save him. What a picture of idolatry. Man can't even make it through an idol-making process without needing something. He was in the process of making an idol and realized he was hungry and thirsty and needed things. And so he made an idol out of part of it, because in the other part he needed to cook his food with it. Then he dreamed up an idol. Then he made it. Then he worshipped it. Think of that Calvin quote. Man tries to express in his work the sort of God that he inwardly conceives. For Israel, back in Exodus 32 that we read earlier at the foot of Mount Sinai, they wanted a God that, they, that would keep them safe, that would bring them comfort. We've read several, several portions from Exodus over the last few weeks. Remember, what did they want? What did they want Moses to do? Please, please just let us go back to Egypt. And if you read some of those passages and there in the Numbers, the reasons they want to go back to Egypt is almost always food related, the comfort that they had. They they had pots of meat and onions and melons, not really things that I would list as food items, but you know there they were. With their, they wanted their pots of meat and their onions. And even though they had a God that had parted the Red Sea for them, remember we read that last week, that God parted the Red Sea, 
that there was a wall of water on both sides of them, and they passed over on dry land. God crushed the armies of Pharaoh in the middle. And they're like, you know, I was thinking about those pots of meat the other day and how wonderful they were and how I'd like to get more pots of meat and onions. So when Moses didn't come back, well, they just made another God because they were afraid. And which happened to match one of the gods that they worshipped in Egypt, this idol of the cow. And what better way to make a god than with the earrings that they had plundered from the Egyptians on their way out of Egypt. And we read these stories and we might think, if we're not careful, we might think, well, how stupid can they be? And we say that out of one side of our mouth while thinking, why doesn't God listen to me? Or worse... Just make God into something that he's not. We create him in our own image so that we can do things that we want to do. So that we can do that he will do things that we want him to do. We ultimately want control. That hasn't you don't have to go very far into this book to find people that wanted control. Eve wanted it since since she was told by the serpent about that that she could have control god doesn't want you to eat this because he knows you'll be just like him so she did it we just want to decide who god is we do this already with silly little things that we say maybe he's our co-pilot maybe he's just our buddy maybe he's our fail safe you know he's the one that picks us up when we need him but only when we need him he's there We don't say things like this, though. We never would say things like this because we know that they're silly. We only thank them, and maybe we don't even thank them, but we just show them by the way that we live our daily lives. So I encourage you to consider your own life and the things that you are, that currently go before you or that you need to go before you. And how can you do this? Well, consider the things that if they went away, you would completely be lost. I'll give you an example from my own life. I don't do this to glorify me or glorify sin. Just to give you an example of kind of how I work through this and the things that I think about when it comes to my own idolatry. One of my idols is order. I'm an organized person, if you know me. I'm pretty organized. I'm I'm a planner. I I like to plan as far out as I can, as far out as I can imagine. I can't even understand how other people don't do this. It doesn't even make sense to me that no one else would plan their lives. I can't imagine someone just doing something spontaneously. So I've created a God that rewards that. That always pats me on the back when I'm organized and when I plan things. Gives me permission to get angry at any time that my plans don't go right. I have that permission because of this God that I've created. And so that's what I do. According to my idol, I am vindicated in my anger. Because I can't imagine why someone else wouldn't plan their life. It's even right for me to stay angry. Maybe just to stay away from people in general. Because people cause random things to happen. And I can't do random. Because flexibility is the enemy of my God. He's the God of not being interrupted. He's the God of rigidity. So when I'm interrupted, or when I need to be flexible, I am allowed to lash out. Those things are all lies, by the way. It's the thing that Isaiah says here, is there not a lie in my right hand? 
He feeds on ashes, verse 20. A deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, he cannot say of the thing that he holds up in his right hand, is there not a lie in my right hand? Because the idolater doesn't see it as a lie, they see it as a God. But for me, this little God that I created is the the thing that I hold up in my right hand and were it not for Jesus Christ, I wouldn't be able to look at it in any other way. But now I can look at it and say, you are a lie. You are not real. And notice verse 20 again. What does he say? When we fall at the feet of our idols, we feed upon ashes. A song that we sing pretty commonly around here quite a bit is a song that really shows this whole thing working itself out. It's the song Satisfied. I'll quote the lyrics and just listen to them in the context of what we just read from Isaiah 44. Feeding on the filth around me till my strength was almost gone. My soul longed for something better, only still to hunger on. Poor I was and sought for riches, something that would satisfy. But... The dust I gathered round me only mocked my soul's sad cry. There has to be something better, brothers and sisters, in Christ than the dust that we have gathered around ourselves, than the idols that we make. Thanks be to God that even though we drown out verses 6 through 8 with our idol making, the sounds of our little idol factory that we have, he still forgives us. That's something that would satisfy is only Jesus Christ. That brings us to deliverance from idolatry, verses 21 and 22. Remember these things. God is talking again to us. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out my transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Though we have forgotten him and exchanged him for a lie that we can literally hold in our right hand, he, the creator of all things, the one who holds all things together, the first and the last, has not forgotten us. In fact, he has blotted out our sins and they are no more And he bids us return to him. How did he blot out generations of idolatry? Generations. Not only counting my own years, which is just an extraordinary thing in and of itself, that he could blot those out. But he's blotted out centuries and centuries of idolatry. How did he do it? He did it by coming himself. He became a man and he dwelt among us. He knew no sin, but he became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. And this is the cause of celebration in verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O the depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. The Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. This is the cause for celebration. He has redeemed his people. 
He has redeemed his idol-making people. And not only that, and hear this, brothers and sisters in Christ, not only that has he redeemed us, but he will be glorified in us. He will take the ones that make idols and supper out of the same stuff and use us that he might be glorified in us. It reminds me of Shorter Catechism 1 that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Which reminds me of a John Piper quote that you've all heard. He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It's in Christ alone that we are able to turn from our idolatrous ways and instead turn to God. Now Isaiah ends this treatment with that same calling. God says, return to me. I have redeemed you. Jesus came preaching that exact same message, did he not? And it's the message that we stick to around here that we give to believers and unbelievers alike. Repent and believe. Repent means turn back to him. Believe that he alone is able. The dust that you gather around you, that you call a God, is only ever going to mock you. So instead of feeding on ashes, feed upon the bread of life, the living water. That hymn that satisfied, the last verse even says this, well of water ever springing, bread of life so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth, my Redeemer is to me. He is the one that our soul so long has craved for. So let us go to him. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, know that you may not thank yourself an idolater, but all of us worship something. Everybody worships something. Rather than worship a false god, call out to Jesus and be saved. The Lord punishes idolaters for all eternity. But those who have called upon the name of Jesus Christ will be delivered. He will save them. In conclusion, brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus satisfies all of our longings. Who else do we have but him? Call out to him today. Repent and believe. Believe this for your own life. Cast down your idols and run to Jesus. Then point a dying world to him also. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, the thing that we hold up in our right hand is a lie. You are the one true God. You are the only one who deserves our worship and our praise, our adoration, our singing, all that we could possibly give. Because you have redeemed us. You have kept a people for yourself from the foundations of the earth. Even while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us. Draw us nearer to you. Help us to share this same message with the dying world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.